Did you start learning Resolve? I did. I had looked at it a little bit over the Christmas break, very, very briefly. But over this past weekend, I did get more of a chance to look at it. So that was good. I've been going through that uh, PDF, the DaVinci Resolve Beginner's Guide, which is on their website. And it kind of walks you through an edit. So they have some assets that you download, like some videos and stuff. And then they just walk you through doing all the stuff with it. And I haven't gotten very far into it yet. It's all been about the cut page so far, but it's kind of walked through like taking all those source clips and picking out the interview shots you like and putting them on the timeline and then adding B-roll over it and trimming things and moving things around and just like those kinds of things. That guide is for Resolve 17, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is for 17. I haven't noticed anything yet that's different. I was and curious. Like, like, There's nothing where it's been like, oh, this menu option isn't there anymore or anything like that. So It seems like they added a lot of big things whenever they went from 16 to 17. Like That's when they added the proxies. That's when mm-hmm. they added the color warper and those sorts of things. I don't... 18 is obviously like newer and better, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it was as drastic of a change as 16 yeah. plus to 17. Well, and to be fair, like in a tutorial, I don't know if I would hit all of those things. And, and certainly I'm very shallowly into it i haven't gotten very far so i guess 18 the biggest change was the cloud sync stuff Mm, and being able to work with people on the project in that way Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't know if it's going to cover any of that but it's been interesting so far i mean the cut tab is kind of different from anything that you would normally see in the other editors but so far it feels like it makes sense to me and we've done a lot of like interview or story type videos and it seems like it could work pretty well for stuff like that, where you just need to go through and pull out your sound bites, and then you're going to do more precise editing later. So, we'll yeah, see. I feel like I should learn the cut tab just just to give myself a reason to want to edit on an iPad. Honestly, yeah, that's that's the biggest reason I'm interested in it is that I want to see what would be possible on the iPad, and so it's cool to learn about it. Yeah, and understand that. But it's been good so far. I need to dig more into it. I know you're anxious to see how the collaboration stuff works with me yeah. doing that. So I need to wrap my head around it a little bit more and then try syncing some of that stuff. I want to know how painful it is to remap all of the footage for the projects that I set up and then shared with you. Yeah. I mean, you did rename every single file and rearrange all the directories. So the answer is probably very painful. But what if it's not? That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what I need to know. Yeah. How simple is it? The biggest takeaway I had from my learning so far is that DaVinci Resolve has a boring detector. Mm-hmm. And I kind <laughs> of wish Logic had a boring detector so we could use it for this podcast. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> oh, Lucas, I tried out this boring detector and it just doesn't work. It never detects anything that's boring. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Wow. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> the boring detector does like, you could like set in the maximum length of clips or whatever, and it'll go through and tell yep, you when things yep. are too long. Yeah. And so the problem we have is that we're so bad at talking that we don't have any clips that are more than 10 seconds long yeah, once I'm done with the edit. Uh-huh. So nothing's boring. Perfect. Yep. Man, that boring detector and resolve. It's like, what if you edit 15 more jump cuts? <laughs> People are going to click away. It's like the YouTube boring detector. Exactly. Well, I was thinking what it needs is like AI learning stuff where mm-hmm. it you, you just point it at Mr. Beast's YouTube page and it analyzes all his videos and it's like, Sorry, bro. Yours isn't yours isn't like this. Not good enough. Need a little more saturation and contrast yep. in that thumbnail, please. Yep, yep. More saturation, more contrast, and it feels like you needed to give away about five hundred thousand dollars more dollars in this video. <laughs> it's just like not giving away enough money. <laughs> Boring. <laughs> I, I wrote this on here because I was going to trick you and ask me about it. 
what do you think about those Cinebloom filters, Daniel? Well, I, I was going to ask you that question too, because you're the one that has a Cinebloom filter. I've always been interested in stuff like the Tiffin ProMist filters, and I think the Cinebloom is maybe just a different brand that does something similar. I think they're all slightly different because like Tiffin has... Is the Pro Mist Tiffin? Tiffin? I think or is it so. something else? I okay. think it's them. Because they also have a Black Mist filter. Okay. And then Moment is the one that makes the Cine Bloom filter. Mm-hmm. And I think they all are kind of slightly different. I think the Cine Bloom gives more of like a halation type effect. Mm-hmm. And then the Black Mist, I think, mostly just softens. Yeah. But the Pro Mist has more of like a refraction to it. I see. Where instead of it just being softer, it is more like diffused mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, it, it they seemed interesting to me because I, I do feel like we're getting to a point that resolution's so high on video stuff that you can kind of get something that seems too sharp, too processed. Too, too digital, right? Yeah. That's that's what everyone's trying to get away from is they want it to look more natural. Yeah. And having used the ProMist, I don't know if oh, you I... you used the Cinebloom. Thank you. Having used the Cinebloom, I don't know if I like it that much. It does add a lot of that like soft glow, but if you have too many lights in the frame... And that sort of thing, eh, it almost looks too much like a 90s soap opera. Yeah, it seems like it's easy to overdo it. And that's what I'd be worried about. I, I've never been one of those people that wanted to use some like awful vintage lens that's out of focus and weird. And like, I'm not into that. And so I, I, that's my fear with, with filters like that, is that it's going to be that kind of thing. I've been using it a lot. And sometimes I can't tell that it's on there. And other times it softens it up just enough to look pretty good. Mm-hmm. And then other times... It looks absurd. Like I've shot some stuff where like some of the lights hanging outside are in the shot. And I forgot that I had the Cinebloom on there. And then I go back and watch it. And I'm like, those lights look insane mm. because they're all just glowy balls of, of ridiculousness. Yeah. I guess it just depends on the situation. But... It really depends on the situation. I think that you have to strategically apply your Cinebloom and not put it on for everything. Is that, think... is that hard for you? Do you want to put it on for everything? I, I don't. I really don't. <laughs> I mean, I didn't buy it on purpose. It kind of, uh, it kind of came to me. Sometimes, you know, Cinebloom just happens to you. Yeah. And I think for me, something like a black mist filter maybe would make more sense because sometimes I want like a little more glow to the light, but that's not really what I'm looking for. I'm more looking for like an image to be softened up. Yeah. And I think if that you, is more black mist. If you can get one without the other, that seems like it would be pretty good. Yeah. I mean, there's all kinds of different options for for these mm-hmm. types of filters. So. Yeah. I know. Sony Bloom is cheaper. So that's, that's that's good. How's that yeah, going th- for those, None of those filters are very cheap. Right? No, I think the Sony Blooms are 70 bucks, but the Promist ones are over 200 Yeah. They're really that's expensive. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, it's like I'm interested in trying it, but not $200 worth. Yeah. I mean, you could you can borrow my Sony Bloom if you want. I mean, I could also just get a UV filter and rub some Vaseline on it. I mean, I, I think you like you just kind of scratched up a little bit. Get oh, some okay. sandpaper in there. Yeah. Start laying into it. Perfect. A thousand grit. That would work. It's basically the same thing. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. indistinguishable. Okay, I think I had one more pre-show item for follow-up, but I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over it, and I might ask you about it later. Oh, okay. That's that's building some suspense. It sure is. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel, and I'm Lucas, and we're back to talk more about the gear side of photo and video. Well, maybe we should talk about some news that's happened. I think there've been, you know, quite a few releases lately and uh, just random, mostly non-camera stuff, but camera adjacent stuff. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So, well, uh, talk about some of that. Sure. Are you going to get a new computer? 
I don't know if I'm going to get a new computer. I'm trying to figure that out. You need to, you need to help me work through that and figure out what I should do. Sure. Sure. So obviously these sweet new cameras that are coming out, they're all shooting, you know, long GOP 422 internal 10 bit footage. This is really, really heavy codecs. Got to have a good computer to run it. Right. Apple just released the new M2s, right? The new M2 Pro, M2 Max, yep. the new MacBook, whatever, MacBook Pro laptops. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in my experience, having gone through a lot of that heavy XH2S footage, I'm easily pushing into, you know, 30 to 60 gigs of used RAM <laughs> on my 16, 16 gig laptop. Yeah. So it's a bit much. Like you're, you're using the same footage. So like in upgrading, I feel like you need, you need more RAM. The SSDs for the new M2 chips is like twice as fast yeah. as the M1. I think the memory bandwidth. I think yes, yeah, the memory there. bandwidth. So maybe it's the RAM that's faster, but also the SSDs are significantly faster. Yeah. And I mean, me having been able to go, you know, 30 gigs into swap and still be able to use the computer. I mean, that that speaks a lot for like how good the swap mm. is and the speed of the the memory or whatever the speed of the SSDs is on those machines. So I feel like the M2 with that being even better, maybe you could get away with less RAM. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's guess, hard, hard to go hard to want to buy not not the maximum or not a lot. Yeah, and then like all the files are huge. Yeah. If you want to work on anything local. Mm-hmm. I mean the proxies has really helped, but I mean you kind of need whatever like 2 4 terabytes mm-hmm. at least. So we we both got the M1 MacBook Air pretty soon after it came out. I think it was announced in the fall of 2020, and we both got it in early 2021. Right, yeah, basically right away. And the M1 was a big step up, and so that computer was very fast. But, I mean, our laptops are like a MacBook Air. It's not necessarily like a pro-level computer. Right. There's no fan so you have a little bit like that, that has never been felt like a limitation, but it's just kind of crazy to me that we can do video editing without a fan. Yeah. And we both have the same config, I think. So we've got one terabyte of storage and 16 gigs of RAM. Right. And it just feels to me like over time, especially in the last year, it seems like we've started doing more projects. We both got XH2Ss, so we've got more, uh, you know, we can generate larger files mm-hmm. that are more demanding. And it feels like the combination of those things to me is like, and, and we've got more projects planned. I think we have even more ambitious stuff we want to do. And so it feels to me like my computing needs are increasing at a rapid pace right now. Yeah. And my computer is meeting my needs. Everything I've tried to edit so far, I can. And I think that's the case for you, too. You had that problem with the Final Cut project, but you have been able to complete your project so far. Yeah, like it's mostly meeting my needs, but mm-hmm. I'm kind of in the same boat as you as I, I would like to upgrade my laptop. The current thing, the current project that I'm working on, I have a 6K A roll, which I didn't have to do it, I know. And then I have four 4K videos and then another 4K video. So I have like six, mm-hmm. at least 4K resolution, whatever, 422 files in my timeline. Yep. And then I'm also going to be adding some B roll on top of it and color grading and effects. And I have to, I'm using proxies that are already transcoded to ProRes and then playing them back at a quarter resolution. And I had, that's just to get it to play at yeah. 24 frames per second. Yeah. If I like, you know, apply noise correction or I try to play back anything more than a quarter resolution, it chugs. Yeah. Like it can, it can barely do 13 mm. you know, frames per second. So it, it feels like we are hitting that limit where trying yeah. to do stuff that the computer just can't handle. And maybe these new M2 MacBook Pros are the answer. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, we've kind of been kind of been waiting for yeah. them, right? It's yeah. they seem pretty good. 
I will say it's a pretty small spec bump over the M1 MacBook Pros. I mean, it seems like the CPU performance is what twenty percent better, yeah, 20 and then to the 30%. GPUs maybe thirty. But if you go with the Max, it's like sixty percent or something. Mm-hmm. Seems like it's more power efficient. Yeah. I don't know. It's the same five nanometer process, right? So like, mm-hmm. it's not that different. Yeah. It's just whatever faster. Well, and I mean, yeah, and the, the no physical changes to the design. I kind of it kind of leaves me feeling like if I had an M1 MacBook Pro, I probably wouldn't upgrade. Because that would have an M1 Pro or an M1 Max. And, I mean, this just feels like, compared to those computers, it's a pretty small spec bump. But for us, coming from a regular, a base M1 MacBook Air, going to something like an M2 Pro, M2 Max, like, that does feel like a big step up. I always struggle with this with Apple stuff, because it's like, it's it's sort of like the mid the mid-refresh cycle, you know, like, they haven't released a new design and all that. And, like, am I, is my computer going to feel outdated in a year? But at the same time... These computers seem really good, and I just feel like I'm at a place right now that it probably makes sense to upgrade. Right, and if you're upgrading now, you talked about you know this is a you know mid cycle. It seems like they do this you know 12 to 18 month turn on the on the pros. Mm-hmm. So if, if you don't upgrade now, you're basically committing yourself to another year and a half with the M1s. Like you have to upgrade. Yeah. And sure, the next version may have the three nanometer process, which is probably gonna be a bigger bump. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to decide: Are you upgrading for a year and a half now, or slash two years? Yeah. Or are you upgrading long term? Mm-hmm. And I was tweeting at Patrick Tomaso on Twitter because he has the new M2s and he's like, ask me anything, right? And I was kind of curious, you know, what what's he configuring and does he think you, know, you get away with, you know, less RAM or whatever? And it seems like, you know, he's he's basically doesn't want to, have to upgrade again. So he's going, you know, 64 gigs of RAM on his his configuration. And that's kind of where I'm stuck is like, do you do you go 64 or do you go 32? Because if you bump to that 64 gigs of RAM, you have to get the max. Yeah, but at the same, the but at the same time, that means that you're also getting a CPU and GPU boost. Yeah, it's a pretty big boost too. Mm-hmm. You're like doubling your cores of GPU, and then you're adding like two cores of CPU. So yeah. like they'll be the same speed, but just it's more multi-core. Mm-hmm. I and do, I do think the M1 Max has double the memory bandwidth of the uh, Pro. Really? Yeah, it's oh. four four hundred gigs a second instead of two. Oh, that's right, because it's it's two chips, right? Yeah. And so you more parallelization, mm-hmm. which for color and denoising and you know encoding, generating yeah. proxies, rendering all that stuff that's in Resolve. Mm-hmm. Whoo. Yep. Yeah, and so like when I was looking at it, it I mean just to put some basic numbers to it, and and I was looking at the education store, which is slightly discounted, but sure, it was roughly like. The, the base configuration I would consider would be like 32 gigs of RAM, two terabyte SSD with an, with an M2 Pro. And that uh, this is a 14-inch MacBook Pro. And that was somewhere in the range of like $2,800. And then the next one up... You're talking like the baseline uh, Pro? Yes, or the, 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 base, the baseline and more like the, the cheapest 14-inch MacBook Pro I would consider. $3,300. Yeah. Why is it so different? 32 gigs with a two terabyte... SSD 32 with a two terabyte SSD. I'm so like I'm surprised that's as big of a difference as it is because I thought it was under three thousand. It is. I think the education store okay. is, is a significant discount this time around. Okay. The next step would be 64 gigs of RAM, two terabyte SSD, which requires you to go up to the to the M1 Max. Right, and it's basically oh yeah no I selected the wrong one that's why. Yeah, the uh, the upgrade to an M1 Max from that configuration is like an eight hundred dollar mm-hmm. bump, basically. Yep, yep. And so you kind of end up with these multiple variables where it's like, do you care about the RAM? Do you care about the SSD? And when I think about it, I I honestly think I care more about having a four terabyte SSD 
than having 64 gigs of RAM. Yeah, so it's 3,000 flat. And then if you need 30, you know, 64 gigs of RAM, you have to go up to the first the first max, and then it adds the 64. And it's, it's $900 more for a configuration that supports 64 versus 32 yeah. if you aren't really pushing for the higher-end processor and GPUs. Yeah, yep. And... I don't know. It's tough. I because I don't like. I don't know if I'm buying this computer for the next two years or the next five years, and that's that's what gets hard. Yeah, no kidding. That's a, that's a hard call. I don't know if for me nine hundred dollars is worth pushing to get that sixty four gigs of RAM. Like if you need the M, the max, then it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can see an argument for it, but I wouldn't buy an M two max if I thought that I was going to replace it in two years. Yeah. I would only buy it if it was my next. My computer for the next five years. I mean, the, the problem is we just don't know, right? Like, you don't know what, what your needs are going to be in two years. You don't know what the computers are going to look like in two years. If they release something crazy that has an OLED screen and touchscreen and all that, you know, like, you're probably going to want to upgrade. And so, yeah, maybe. you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I guess I end up being tempted to get the higher-end configuration just because maybe that does make it last longer. And maybe even if my needs change, maybe that means my next computer is a desktop that I can use for rendering or whatever and, like, I still have this good laptop that can last longer. It's just hard to know. I feel like you're always going to be running out of storage no matter how much you get. And that you should always get as much storage as you can afford to do, Mm -hmm. which is hard because, like, I don't want to pay an extra 600 bucks for four terabytes. But also, you know, I could see an argument for the, you know, maxing it out to eight terabytes. (laughs) Man, I don't think I could do that. But it's tough. You could just you could just buy a Windows PC. That'd be way, way cheaper. uh, uh. (laughs) The, The other factor, too, is that. I have to decide, you know, do I, do I feel comfortable carrying around a $4,000 laptop? That's why you get, you get Apple care plus. I mean, just add another $300 on top of it. I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I, I think I'm going to get one of these computers. And right now I think I'm leaning toward just going all out 64 gigs of Ram, four terabyte hard drive. And I guess I feel like, okay, it's going to cost me a thousand dollars more, but it, even if I only had this two years, like two years from now, am I going to care about having spent that extra thousand dollars? Like, is that going to, is that going to matter to me versus the benefits? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, it kind of depends upon the projects that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, I painfully need more Ram and I could like looking at the Ram usage for the projects that I'm working on, I could easily justify 64 gigs, but that's, that's a tough upgrade. And honestly, like going to an M2 Pro, even the base level Pro, over an M1 that's, that's going to be air, a, That's going to be a big step that's up. That's a pretty big jump in GP performance. And I think that would actually meet my needs. Yeah. But that's that's me. I I don't know. I, well, it would be nice to get this under under 3,000. Well, let's talk about what you're going to do, though. I mean, are you, you know, we, we talked about it probably makes sense for me to upgrade, but how are you feeling about it? Man... I kind of feel like I need to, but it also depends upon how much I can I can get from my M1 if I sold it. Uh, I love I love this computer. The mm-hmm. M1 Air is so good. It's so good. But I would love a bigger screen. I like the HDR. It was sure would be nice to have an SD card slot and be able to run more than one screen. Like there's so many reasons to upgrade, yep. especially for a lot of the stuff that we're doing. And like I want to work on that short film later this year. And there's a lot of projects that we're going to be doing. And I'd like to do more of these interviews that we have lined up already and, you know, get a few more scheduled. And it's like, that's a lot of cool stuff we're going to do. And we're going to be doing a lot more video. And, oh, man, I feel like I feel like we need to upgrade for yeah. sure. But I don't know. I, I think I think for me, because of how fast SSDs are and all the swap 
I'm probably going to end up going 32 gigs of RAM and then an M1 Pro just to save the money. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to regret it or not because I don't want to have to buy another computer. That's the problem. Mm. It's like I haven't used an M1 Pro machine yet or an M2 Pro machine at this point because, I mean, they just came out. So I'm going to wait and see how the reviews are and whether or not, I mean, based upon workflow, like how much better the Max is. Yeah. And, like, if going with a Max, you know, makes it so the computer can last that much longer, could be worth it. Mm -hmm. Like, I I bought a 2016 MacBook Pro with a butterfly keyboard. And I got to get the three years on the key started to stick. And so they replaced that replaced the whole motherboard to replace it. And so I got a brand new battery, not the motherboard, but I got, a, you know, yeah, it was. I got a brand new battery and keyboard, you know, at like three and a half years of having this computer mm-hmm. basically made it a brand new computer. Yep. And then I gave it to somebody and they're still using it. That computer is eight years old mm-hmm. and it's still meeting their needs. And that's why you buy a Mac is because like they, they literally last 10 years. And I usually keep my computers around four. But if I think about, you know, this this potential computer and like what it, what we're doing and the, and the types of things that we're going to be growing into, if we ever get around to like shooting raw or something like that could be yeah. an issue without ha- with not having enough storage, not having enough RAM. I don't know. Like I, a, could see, so I could see an M2 Max like being a five-year computer easily. Yeah. yeah. I mean, speaking to your longevity thing. I own a sort of own a 2012 MacBook Pro. It was the first Retina MacBook Pro. Right. And that computer is still in use. Yeah. So I gave that to my parents and they use it. And I mean, they use it weekly and it works great. Yeah. Like, it's it's old now, obviously, but it still functions. All the hardware is solid. I mean, I've I, never I, I've never had a Windows laptop last more than four years. Yeah. Agreed. Well, yeah, I'm curious to see what's going to happen. You know, I feel like it's not going to be long before I order one of these because I really want some of the, like, I want the multi-monitor support. I want the better screen, all that. But I am curious to see what reviews look like. And it'd be really interesting if you and I ended up with different configurations because we'd be able to try things, you know, on both machines and see how much of a difference it actually makes. But could you could you imagine just how jealous I would be if I got a lower configuration and then I was having trouble running certain footage and you were like, Oh, oh yeah, man. Lucas, let me, let me just do that on my computer. If, if, uh, if that happens, it will definitely be heard on this podcast. Cause I oh, will be, I'll be rubbing that in. I can't, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to let you order and I'm going to let all the dust settle. Uh-huh. I'm going to watch roughly 55 YouTube videos. I'm going to read three reviews and then I'm going to wait six months and then do something. I'm not going to wait six months. Because it's like, you know, it's that the computer just gets older. Yeah, yeah. It just gets to be shorter and shorter before you're going to feel like your computer's outdated. So, <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. Do you really think you're going to buy a new laptop in the next six months? Maybe. It's very possible. We'll see. Follow up for some future episode. Yeah. We'll see what happens well, here. Yeah, because this is the, the laptop podcast. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'm going to say, biggest disappointment is that they didn't release it in midnight. Yeah. What's up with that? Like, no new colors. Come yeah. on. Yeah. I just, I want, I want something more than gray i wanted them to release the macbook air and all the colors that they mm-hmm. put the the imax out yeah in. you get like yellow or purple or something that'd be super cool yeah but no they only came out with the dumb midnight color yeah. you can still only get it on the new macbook air mm-hmm. <gasps> yeah that's a shame i was really looking forward to showing every single fingerprint on my laptop and now i can't do that Ugh, so dumb you just yeah. got you're gonna have to get a skin man i guess so that's guess what so. it is all right well let's talk about something more camera related what do you got okay uh, Delta recently released the new Hydra Arm. Hydra Arm. What is that? It, it's a Hydra Arm. You you slap it on the top of your roof rack for your car, and it has a remote control, and it's it's a it's an arm for for capturing car movement. I mean, that sounds pretty sweet. Yep, and it weighs a lot, and 
you can carry up to 22 pounds of payload for your camera. It doesn't have any power support, so everything has to be on battery and has a little remote control. And so you can drive and then you have a passenger and use a little remote control. That's super and you cool. can go up to 74 miles an hour and shoot video. That sounds awesome. We yep. need we need that next time we film the Big Bend Road Race. We just show up to that as and register our car and be like, "Yeah, we're uh, we're racing." Well, cough, cough. <laughs> we're we're going to go 74 miles yeah, an hour. I just, I just need to make sure that we're uh, we're right, right behind this person. Yeah. yeah. No big deal. I guess I would be under the tech speed limit for that race. So MKBHD has that Tesla they modified, and they have the big swinging arm on there. How, what does this compare to that? Is, I mean, it, is it smaller than that? This is smaller than that. I think this is this is the Hydra Arm Mini. And so it's not as big or as obtrusive, and you can probably load it onto a car that doesn't have as much weight capacity. I don't know, man. This thing's pretty big. (laughs) If this is the Mini, I don't want to see the the M2 Pro Max. Oh, man, they have a Pro and a basic kit. This This is cool. This thing is pretty big. $1,200. Mm. Uh, oh, it, you, it breaks you, down into three. Hold, hold on, hold. You missed a zero on that. Sorry, twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> it breaks down into uh, to three three uh, portable cases. Yeah. Uh, uh. The shipping weight for the Hydra Arm Mini is over three hundred pounds <laughs> and ships in three boxes. Shipping <laughs> shipping is nine nine nine. Shipping is another thousand dollars. You don't even get free shipping. <laughs> Okay, yeah, this isn't actually what we're talking about. I just wanted to show it to you. Is it not? Why are we not talking about this? I don't know. Do you need a Hydra Arm Mini Pro? I mean, mean, (laughs) yes, obviously. It looks pretty sweet. I mean... I don't, I don't really have any... Okay, so like Squad Goal is a project where we need one of these. Yes, I agree. Yeah, we'll expense expense a $12,000 and be like... It's the mini. It's not that much. <laughs> I mean, the whole goal is just to get the client to pay for it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. right. Okay. But in, in the same vein of stabilization, DJI did come out with a new RS3 mini gimbal. Yeah, they did. And it looks pretty interesting. It's like a smaller version of what they have had in the past, it's like a 4.4 pound payload limit. What's that other small one? Uh, it's like a Weeble or something. Weeble. Yeah, um, there's other companies that make gimbals. Right, uh, Zhiyun's the one that makes a lot of those, and yeah. they, they make they make like that like like a crane is one model they make, mm-hmm. and they make the the Weeble Lab. And I I have a hard time keeping those things straight. I don't know which one's the best. Like that's that's one thing that DJI does pretty well. You can look at their models and you can know like this is the high end one, this is the best one. I just I've always kind of liked that the little Weeble one because of like the way that it looks under slung and how it's it just. It's so small and compact. Yeah. And yeah. this new DJI, whatever, Ronin 3 something mini seems pretty cool because it's 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 super small. Yeah, it is. And and that does add up. Like they compared it to the RS2, which is DJI's higher, like it's the high end uh, handheld gimbal. And which one do you have? So I have an RSC2. Okay. Uh, which when they, so... DJI has an RS3 now, actually, and I think they got rid of the SC series. But when they had the R, when they came out the RS2, they also had an RSC2, which was kind of just like a lower end mm-hmm. version of the same right. gimbal. And real quick, the RS3, according to Google, weighs three thousand six hundred and forty nine pounds. Yeah, and as a car, that's that's perfect. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's really hard to hold that in your hand. Yeah, that's why they had to cut. That's how. They, that's why they had to come out this lighter weight one. That makes a lot of yeah, sense. That three thousand pounds is too much. Yep. But yeah, so I had an RSC2, and that was also like a lighter weight, lower power version of the RS2, but that one's still bigger and stronger than this new 
uh, RS is it RS3 Mini? Yeah. yeah, the RS3 Mini, which yeah. it is a pound lighter than mm-hmm. the RS2. And that does and add up. It can hold about, wow, about half the payload. Or mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's two kilograms yeah. versus 4.5. Yeah. So it does hold less. But I mean, if you think about two kilograms, which is mm, five pounds, four and a half pounds, that's uh, an XH2S. Um, just an Picking a camera off the top of my head as an example. Just random camera. <laughs> yeah, random camera. Uh, XH2S. Or like a Sony, whatever, A7 IV. Mm-hmm. Half a pound, pound, point, like 600, 800 kilogram, kilograms, <laughs> grams. And then a lens, say it's like a 24 to 70 or something that's internal zoom or, I don't know, say like a Tamron 17 to 70, just for instance. Uh, random lens. That's maybe, whatever, a kilogram. Mm-hmm. You, so you, you can do that, right? You can do a camera and a lens and if like that's your simple setup, this seems like a really yeah, great deal. Maybe so. I I don't. I think it's on the lower end of weight. I think if you have a full frame camera, it's going to be a problem because, I mean, for one thing, you don't want to be at the maximum weight capacity because the gimbal has a harder time stabilizing if it's too heavy. Now, you don't right. want to be too light either. Like sometimes people have had to add counterweights and stuff because the setup they had, you know, is like too light for the gimbal. But I mean, it's not the kind of thing that you want to run all the way to the limit and. The other thing to keep in mind is like, maybe you look at it and say, you know, well, I'm shooting APS-C, you know, I had this really lightweight camera. It's just not that big of a deal, but it does limit the usefulness of it because, I mean, I've seen people like, uh, like Josh Yeo, uh, the Make Art Now guy, like he's done some really interesting stuff where he shoots uh, like a telephoto lens on a gimbal and he gets those cool parallax effects and stuff. And I mean, if you have something like the Fuji 50 to 140, that's a pretty heavy lens. Sure. And then if you add a camera on there, you're you're getting pretty close to that limit. And then, you know, maybe you're on a professional shoot or something and you need to use like a matte box or an ND filter or something. I mean, it well, just, I think, I think it'd be easy to exceed this stuff. That's missing what this is for, right? And that, that look like looking at an R6 Mark II with a, with a, that 14 to 35, mm-hmm. that's like, Five and a half, five and a half hundred kilograms. Jeez, I did it again. Like five hundred fifty grams, and then the lens is a thousand. So like you're you're you know That's one pretty, one pretty and close. a half kilograms, one point two kilograms versus the total payload, which is like two yeah. or something. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think that's what this is for. It's like mm-hmm. L mirrorless camera and a lens. Most common ones are going to work, like an S five yeah. or which I wouldn't use an S five because the stabilization is so good. But you know, it, it, a a camera, a lens, and that's it. If you're getting to where you need to mount batteries or a monitor or mm-hmm. follow focus or any of that stuff, yeah. I mean, you just got you got to graduate to the to the regular yeah. RS3. Yeah, so it depends on what R3. you're doing. I guess it depends on like whether you're trying to buy one tool that can do everything, and if you might want to do like professional type shoots, or if mm-hmm. you're just looking for like a more casual gimbal or a second gimbal. I mean, if know? I need something that's really portable and I just want something to run and gun. And, or I'm doing like real estate and I just, mm. all I need is just a camera on a, on a gimbal. Yep. And this thing is, I think this thing is really cool to me. Yeah, I like how it small does. it is. I would probably go with this over mm. something else. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what they've done with the lineup because like I said, they used to have the RS2 and the RSC2 and now in the, like with RS3 line, I think they've deviated them more. Because when I bought mine, I didn't feel like I could justify getting the RS2 because the RSC2 sure. was almost as good and it was quite a bit cheaper mm-hmm. and now it's like i feel like they have two different products at different price points that right. are for different things That's i was good. looking i didn't look to see how long the battery life was compared to the regular mm, yeah uh, i'm not sure on regular that. r3 I'm not sure on that r3? Jeez, i can't i can't even remember what one, the stupid thing's called one feature it doesn't have that i wish it had is the auto lock and unlock so on the rs3 
whenever you, I think when you turn it off, it automatically locks the locks all the motors. So they don't move. And then when you turn it on, it unlocks them. Yeah, that's nice. That is a super cool feature because I, I know on mine, I forget to unlock it a lot. I'll turn it on and it starts erroring on me and telling me it can't do anything. It's like, oh, I have all these things locked. Let me unlock them. And so stuff like that's pretty neat. But yeah, it looks looks really cool. Um you know, it seems like they're just always improving that stuff and always making them smaller and lighter. And it, oh, is, not, they, it is not fun holding up a gimbal. So They still sell the Ronin SC. Okay. So this isn't even the lowest one, right? They have the R, RS3, the RS3 Pro, and then below it, the Mini, and then below that, the SC. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So okay. I'm trying to find where it compares the payload capacity, but that probably doesn't matter. I was curious to see if... This supported um, the the app control where you can like move your phone and it fall, it, it moves mm. around like remote control, but I couldn't necessarily find. Yeah, I'm not sure if, if that it works does or not. that way. I would assume that it does because mm. it's all just built into the Ronin app. Yeah, I was curious what your thought was on like something like this versus other stabilization methods and like when you would see yourself using a gimbal like this versus a steady cam. Yeah, that's cam. a good question, man. It, it's it's all just so different, you know. I guess like because you got steady cam and you've got just using Ibis. Like those are kind of that's an option. Yeah, right. Too. You can you can handheld it, mm-hmm. or you can do a steady camera. You can do a gimbal. I mean, it seems like any of these systems is, I think, more setup time than people think. You know, if you get to an event or something, you need to shoot something. You have to have planned ahead and balance the gimbal, balance the steady cam. Like you're not just pulling it out of the bag and going. I've gotten with mine where I can balance. If I know what lens I want to use, I can balance it before I go and leave it mostly locked in position. And it's pretty easy to get up and going, but it's still not as easy as just picking up the camera. So I don't feel like it replaces IBIS. I also kind of feel like gimbals in particular, it's a very like clinical look. Sure. I guess like, it's just like this like idealized flying camera thing. And that can work for some things. I mean, they're super popular in real estate and stuff, but I guess sometimes, like, it doesn't feel cinematic to me. Like, it feels too perfect, I guess. Like, the movements always feel, like, too robotic. And I feel like a steady cam gives you a little bit more of kind of, like, a flowy feeling that I think is, I, you know, most people couldn't tell you, like, oh, that's a steady cam, but, like, I think you can kind of tell. And then IBIS is always going to give you a little bit more camera shake that I think sure. can be appealing. I actually want to talk a little bit more about IBIS versus not IBIS and YouTube's obsession with it. But first for looking at like the, say like the RS3 Pro, I mean, that still has a maximum payload capacity of 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. And whenever we shot that pilot, it was, it was horrible. I mean, the plane was going down and like one of us had to take control and I was like, Daniel, why'd you do that? And it was, just, it was yeah. horrifying. We, Lucas, we can't talk about that for legal reasons. So, <laughs> so I'm going to have to cut that out, but let's, let's right, continue. Just bleep it out. It's All fine. Right. Anyway, the Lumix S1H with a monitor and a follow focus and the Teradek and the battery was like 15 pounds or something mm-hmm. or pushing 10. That would have never worked now, that's the, on a gimbal. Keep in mind, the only thing that matters for that payload capacity is the camera and lens and things that are on that. Right. So you like the, the monitor and batteries and Teradek are not... Oh, yeah, that's I guess you not, would have that on the handle and not yeah, on the thing That's not itself. balanced weight, so that yeah, doesn't Yeah, that's a good point. And okay. you still got to hold the thing, which is, you know, as you know, not fun. Right. You could still probably potentially need one of those yeah. arm vests yeah. or whatever. As long as you don't have a matte box on the camera, you're probably okay uh, with that setup. We would have needed a follow focus on it, but that's doable. I'm so. just wondering if, like, the main reason gimbals haven't taken, you know, film by storm is because you still, with all the stuff you actually need attached for the kind of cameras that you want to put on there, like an Aerial X or something, you're just going to be over the weight. 
and you need something that's that's more you need substantial. A, you need a Tilta Hydra Arm Mini. I mean, there's an option <laughs> that has a 22 pound payload capacity, yeah. which still isn't that much. No, it's not. It's not that much. <laughs> so that kind of shows you, like, this is like a 300 pound thing that fits on a car, and like, still only 22 pound capacities. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, with those finer movements and that sort of thing. So I think that you know, there's maybe maybe for the, at least for the short term, mid to long term, movies are just going to still lean towards mm-hmm. Steadicam for that sort of thing. How, what's the payload capacity of that Steadicam you got for whatever ridiculous oh, geez. price? The uh, the Glidecam uh, four thousand. We went to the camera store a while back, and they were running that sale, and you you how, they had it listed for like fifty bucks, right? Oh, geez, it was fifteen. Fifteen. It was so fifteen dollars. No, it was fifty. Or whatever it was. I I mean, you like vaulted over the table to get to that box. You're like, this is mine. Yep, I think it was sweet. It, it actually can only hold ten pounds. Oh man! Well, is is either that fifty dollar glide cam or a you know eight hundred dollar DJI RS three? So pro pro RS three pro RS three pro. Yeah, That's probably a thousand dollars. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't know. There's no way I could look it up. I don't have a laptop in front of mm-hmm. me. So I don't know. I I think about you know the clinical look of a, a gimbal. Versus something that's a little more floaty but prone to error as like a steady cam. Mm-hmm. And then I think about, you know, like the release of the Lumix S S5, right? And how the IBIS was such a big deal and how good it is. And I think that, I don't know, people talk about, oh, I love the C7, the C70 and it's so good. But it ha- it doesn't have IBIS. And I just wish it had IBIS, but it has the internal NDs and you can't really have both. And most cameras that support like anamorphic lenses don't have IBIS, right? Most well, Cinecam cameras don't have except IBIS. Except the GH5. Except for... Except the S5. Yeah, the GH5 and the S5 are the exception <laughs> to that, right? Well, that's the, kind of the point. It's like, oh, now we have IBIS for this stuff. And I feel like if you if you want a natural handheld look, IBIS is not the answer. Yeah. It's just more weight is the answer. Yeah. You yeah, need more a camera that weighs... Or, yeah, maybe a shoulder rig, something like that, but yeah. Right, yeah. If you want to get those micro jitters out, you just need a camera that weighs 15 to 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. And that's how you get that natural handheld look. And I don't know, to me... And I don't know. I guess I haven't shot necessarily enough of this narrative form type thing, but I feel like I would still prefer to see or use something that would didn't have IBIS. I'd rather just, you know, skip out on it and do my own stabilization. If I need a smooth shot, use a steady cam. Cause I, and then if you use a steady cam, you're going to turn the IBIS off anyways, or do a handheld and have it actually look handheld. Yeah. And I feel like IBIS just fights you. I don't know. I feel like it's only good for vloggers at this point. Yeah. You're probably right. I mean, I do remember, though, before you got the X-H2S, you were like, I need a camera with IBIS. And you kept saying that over and over. And I here did. you are saying, like, as a filmmaker, I don't oh, think geez. that anybody oh. should have IBIS and use it. It's true. I'm so, I'm, I'm such a hypocrite. Oh, boy. I mean, the reality is, like, if you're a vlogger or if you're filming video at a wedding or something sure. like that, you're probably not going to walk around with a 20-pound camera. IBIS might save your shot that would otherwise be super jittery and shaky. So, I mean, I, I find it useful. I guess that's my point is if it's a hybrid camera, IBIS is kind of essential. And but you end up in this weird thing where like if you want to shoot something that's like cinematic or uh, or film film looky or you know, you're getting into short film or that sort of thing and you want you want to expand into that world, mm-hmm. all of a sudden IBIS just doesn't matter or you don't want it. But if you're graduating to that from a world where IBIS was needed because you're you know, shooting hybrid and all that sort of stuff, it's just so weird. And I feel like I hear a lot of commentary of people who are like, oh, yeah, no, that red Komodo is super cool, but uh, it doesn't have IBIS. And it's like, well, of course it nobody, doesn't. Nobody buying that camera wants IBIS. Yeah, you don't, you don't want yeah. it. And like something like the R5C doesn't have it. 
And, you know, you get complaints of like, well, R5C doesn't have IBIS. That's a shame. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, no, it's it's not what that camera's for. It's almost better that it doesn't have it. Yeah, we, we really have to remember that so much of what we, so much of the commentary we see on cameras comes from YouTube. And I think we've mentioned this in a couple of past shows for various reasons, but that, that's just such a specific use case. And we, we've kind of gotten to where we perceive that as like, the the needs that people generally have for cameras and it's not it's just this one thing that a lot of people do and they have a loud voice and we all listen to them get information and so it kind of forms our opinions about what people care about but those things don't make sense outside of youtube yeah no it's that's totally true i mean that's why nikon is still a legitimate camera brand yeah apparently even though none of us know about it yeah yeah because all the people that are shooting Nikon aren't on YouTube making videos because Nikon cameras don't focus on video features. But they, they, they literally can't make YouTube videos. But they do have IBIS. They do have IBIS. Do they? Do yeah. They, yeah. Because really? you need it for long exposure, man. <laughs> for all those sweet pics. All those sweet pics. All right. All right. I am legitimately surprised that Nikon cameras have IBIS. <laughs> 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 Moving on to a real cinema camera. Have you heard of the Bozma G1 Pro? I I have not. That sounds a little bit made up to me. What is what is a Bozma? Bozma is a is a camera company that's coming out with a new, innovative, cheapest ever 8K camera. Imagine imagine a world where you don't need you don't need dynamic range. 10, 11 stops is all you need. You don't need you know light gathering capability. You can shoot micro four thirds. You know at ISO. 200 you have all the light in the world but what you need is 8k yeah you, you, you just need more pixels yeah you don't you don't need 422 you're not going to grade the footage you don't need 10 bit you don't need raw all you need is 8k <laughs> all you need is 8k i have the camera for you also i'm underselling it i think it does shoot raw internal <laughs> <laughs> yeah it shoots, it shoots pro res raw at, at, at it probably ha- it probably only shoots raw because it can't process that much data that quickly mm-hmm. like it's, imagine how much data ak is it's, the, the biggest advantage of shooting micro four thirds is that it's it's just faster right like the gh6 true you know panasonic gets to test all this cool stuff out in the gh6 that's a year or two ahead of all the full frame sensors because it's got a small sensor and they can do like this cool dual gain output and whatever. But this camera, like, it feels like it's not taking advantage of any of the cool micro four thirds stuff. <laughs> Just pixels. Just more pixels. More pixels. Which is, is anything else using that sensor? I mean, what what I, even is that? I honestly have no idea. I just assume it's a Sony sensor. Oh, certainly. Yeah. They, all, they all are. Yeah, right. But it's a 33 megapixel Micro Four Thirds sensor. I don't know if I've ever seen a Micro Four Thirds sensor with that many pixels. I mean, you talk about light gathering capability. Each of those pixels is so small. Uh, you must need a lot of light to make this camera work. Yeah, I'm like, who? who is this for? Yeah. But it comes with a, I think it you stick a 5G chip in it maybe, but it can. It has an, like an Ethernet connection. And so it's basically like a stream camera. To me, this is a like set it up in a studio and leave it type camera. I guess. Or, or maybe like a security camera. What a weird thing. I wonder if it works with Blue Iris. <laughs> Imagine how much hard drive space you would need to to record a security loop with that camera. Oh, jeez. It can shoot 600 megabits per second to its CF Express card. (laughs) Which is still probably like pretty poor quality video at 8K. (laughs) Like I look at the specs and I'm just I'm just not impressed. Yeah. I mean, it it really does feel like I mean, we're talking about it, right? Like we Mm -hmm. why would we talk about Boz? 
Bosma. Why would we talk about Bosma otherwise? You There's know, like, a lull, lull in January since it, the last camera release. It feels like <laughs> it feels like they made it to get attention, you know, and to like get headlines. But yeah, it kind of makes me wonder, like, what was the point of building this thing? Who's who's buying this and using it? With, Are we missing something? I think part of the part of the issue here is that they've been working on getting this camera out for a while, mm. and I feel like everyone kind of wants to be the next Red or something, or the next uh, Kinfinity, yeah. and have their you know here's here's your cinema camera. But I mean, the, to the point of it, if you need an 8K workflow, there's not a camera that's cheaper. Yeah, but who, wait, is there who, not a camera that's who cheaper? Hold need, on, wait, well, how, X, much, how much does this thing cost? Can XH2 shoot 8K? How do we not know? Man, I, I think, think it can. I'm pretty. It can. Never mind. There is a cheaper camera that can shoot 8K at the same bit rates. Also, it's a Fuji, and it's a Fuji, so you can shoot a Turner. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, this one costs roughly mm, like thirty five hundred dollars. So it's cheap. Yeah, it's cheap. I'm trying to find it on B and H super quick. I thought I included the link Man, in the show notes. I don't know. I'm. I'm. I feel like we're missing something. You know, there's got to be a use case for this, but I just can't see what it is. I mean, they're selling it as like a streaming camera, right? So if you if you're using it for live streams, if you're using it for a studio, you can like set it and forget it. It has you know internet capability built into the camera, so you can just give that output out to a stream, and it can shoot in 8K and like meet your minimum requirements. And if you have a lit studio, you don't need more than 11,000 dynamic range. I mean, the only thing I can think of is maybe if you have a, maybe you're filling a lot of people, you can set it up and then you can crop in on somebody and still be in 4K. Yeah, I guess so. I, I just don't know. I I don't know about this. I believe it comes in, because it's Micro Four Thirds mount. Duh. I was like, it comes in PL mount. Jeez, what an idiot. It's, it's, it's Micro Four Thirds, <laughs> obviously. I mean, you can reuse all your GH5 lenses on it. Yeah, exactly. I am looking to see, because I know everyone wants to know, XH2 8K. This is very important. Remember when there was that Foxconn factory and they in Wisconsin and they said it was going to do AI 8K 5G? I do remember. Maybe this is what they were That's building. It. We figured it out. Yeah. Yeah, it can shoot 8K up to 30 frames per second. Yeah. So I don't know what the max frame rate on this Bosma thing is, but I think it's I think it's basically 30 frames per second. Just uh just get an XH2. Yeah, it seems like you could just get an XH2 and it would have more dynamic range. Maybe it has worse rolling shutter because it's yeah, maybe probably so. reading out a little slower. But doesn't that, I know the XH2S had that whatever live stream capability uh-huh. thing. I bet the XH2 supports that too. I mean, I, I'd be surprised if it didn't. Yeah. It seems like it seems like you would just buy an XH2. Yeah. Well, that's, that's weird, man. We ended up thinking a Fuji camera was a better choice. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, that never happens. Yeah. That's so strange. Yeah. First yeah. time for everything. So, I mean... I hope, I guess, it works for people. Right. I mean, I'm always happy to have another player in the market. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. It's just strange. It's just strange. Yep. Okay. Speaking of cinema lenses, Biltrox has new anamorphic cine lenses. Full frame. If you're looking for a full frame anamorphic lens, I challenge you to find anything cheaper than this. Even like oh. from Shuri or... Were the were the nanomorphs mm, full frame or are they not? They're APS-C. They are APS-C. All right. Not full frame. Okay. You can get these puppies in EF mount or PL mount. Well, that's professional. Exactly. So super cheap. They come in white. Very fancy. Uh, is that the only color they come in? Guess... I think so. Guess the uh, guess the filter thread size. I want it to be sixty-seven millimeters. <laughs> nope. I don't know what is it. Ninety-two millimeters. Oh my god! Can you even <laughs> buy? I do. I do think the some of the map boxes I've seen go up to ninety-five millimeters. So I guess you have to you have to use it with a map box. Yeah, you do. Huge. Doesn't matter which <laughs> focal length you get. Which they come in three. 
and the focal lengths are 35, 50, and 75. Interesting. Which, like, I thought it was a little weird that you don't get 85 and you don't get 24. Like, 35 cool, 50 cool, but kind of a weird tight range of focal lengths. It makes me wonder if it's a some sort of physics limitation. Has to be. Yeah. So, they're all, you know, the standard gearing, manual lenses. They're anamorphic at a 1.33 squeeze, which, not great. I don't love it. Yeah, because we we talked about this before, and it seemed like 1.5 and 1.66 were common. Is that right? Like, it just kind of depends on what you're wanting to do. If you want to deliver in scope, then what you would typically shoot is a 4x3 sensor with a 2x. Okay. And you're going to get this amazing D-squeeze. Or maybe you'll shoot at like a 1.6x, but that's if you're shooting in an open gate. Mm -hmm. If you're shooting in, uh, you know, 16 by 9 then you need less squeeze so a 16 by 9 at a 1.3 squeeze is scope it's whatever about 2.38 something to one okay almost 2.39 to one okay if you're using this on a camera you're not shooting open gate you're shooting 16 by 9 to get a reasonable output right but if you're if if you really care you want more you want more squeeze and you want to shoot an open gate at least in my opinion right i would much rather shoot like three by two at a one and a half squeeze Mm-hmm. In order to get something a little wider and get you know, more like yeah. 2.35 or something. So I guess that's what you give up for the money if you're getting this cheaper. That's yeah, exactly. The tra- that's the trade off. It's probably like we're still waiting for these things to actually ship. You know, a few people have tried them, but you know, it's probably worse than like the chromatic aberration and that sort of thing. It probably have a lot of character, but you're shooting an anamorphic. And so, like, what, do you, what else are you looking for, right? You want something with character in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, the whole goal of the thing. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I was I've been toying around with the idea of what if I shot with a uh, speed booster, which I know I would be betraying all of my super thirty five brethren. Uh huh. And I'm I I just I can't all these full frame people, Daniel. They're like, if to be pro, you have to shoot full frame. And I'm like, have you seen all these movies shot in super thirty five? Like, no, full frame is the only way. I, and I just I like I want to. Like, I want to believe in Super 35 and I want to support it where I can and like, you know, hey, keep making this Super 35 stuff so we can you know, use it on our faster sensors. But then here you are talking about cheating on it with a speed booster. So I, know. What's that? I mean, we've and we've talked before about how not adapting lenses feels nicer. So what's yep. the deal? Well, what so like about? it's an option, right? You know, that's the versatility. I can have the smaller lighter lenses on my APS-C Super 35 camera. But if I wanted to get a speed booster, I could and then use it like a full frame lens. Which, question number one, what is stopping manufacturers from making bigger lenses with more glass that work like speed boosters? <laughs> just just include a speed booster in the lens? Kind of, yeah. I know that, like, no, like, it's probably because of size and weight and cost, but... But, like, if you were willing to accept, like, a four kilogram Fuji lens? I just, I, I don't <laughs> understand that, you know, if if it's so easy to just buy this adapter that has an extra one extra element of glass in it, mm-hmm. you can all of a sudden make your F1.8 lens an F1.2. Like, why didn't you just ship an F1.2 lens? It's a valid question. Uh, the best thing I could think of is that I imagine all these, kind, like, especially like a, a premium first-party manufacturer, you know, like Canon, Fuji, et cetera. I feel like they have standards for sharpness and image quality and all of those things. And I do feel like you take a hit on that stuff when you use a speed booster. You would have to have a lens that has a image that is, basically you have to have a full frame size lens, mm-hmm. right? Your lens would have to have that much bigger of a diameter 
and you would have to make it that much longer. Mm-hmm. There have to be almost a half an inch longer. Yeah. And so you, this lens is now ungainly. But you're sure. still you're still going to give up sharpness, right? Yeah, true. I guess Fuji did make that 50 millimeter 1.0 lens. Oh yeah, one of the zillion 50 millimeter lenses they make. Yeah, but this one goes down to one. <laughs> so, I don't know. I you know I had a Viltrox uh, speed booster for EF to micro four thirds. And I mean, that speed booster was $114 mm-hmm. and I used it for a long time on the GH5 and it mostly worked well, but I definitely had it lock up my camera a few times. Yeah. That wasn't great. And I don't really know what effect it had on the image quality. I mean, I didn't have a way to, with the same lens, I didn't have a way to compare speed booster and non-speed booster. Right. And like you're relying on the piece of glass in that speed booster to be good. Mm-hmm. And but there's also some issues with uh, focus. So you have to set the focus of the speed boost. You have to twist something inside it. And you can end up with problems where either you can't focus to infinity or you can't focus to like the minimum focus distance. That's just kind of strange. Frustrating. I just I think of how first like some of the some of the more uh, stylized and narrative type stuff that we're going to shoot. I just really really want to shoot it in anamorphic but why would you shoot it in full frame anamorphic rather than getting something like the nanomorphs i feel like i should i mean like the, when it comes down to cost i'm just gonna have to get the nanomorphs but i was looking and uh you can get from metabones an 800 pl to fx speed booster and you would you would feel so cool if you got to use a pl lens oh man i could buy i could buy pl lenses and i can adapt them to my fuji and i would be i would be the coolest person <laughs> i'd be shooting 6k open gate anamorphic and like according to my ninja or something i'm like check this out look how cinematic this footage looks i can hear the youtube video already perfect it just so bad i want this for no for no reason all it is is just money right because like i could i should i should just get a 1.5 nanomorph great squeeze factor it's going to get me where i need to go and it'll fit on your uh gimbal and it's smaller it'll fit on it'll fit on on gimbal or a steady cam and or I'm probably just going to handhold it because I'm because you know I'm not a slacker. I'm not afraid of a heavy yeah, camera. Cradle that camera like a baby. And I'm just going to put I'm going to put like three V mount batteries on there just to make it heavier <laughs> to prove how how strong I am. Look how strong my footage is and how stretched it is. <laughs> so let me get this straight. In the next six months to a year, you're going to buy a new M2 MacBook Pro, possibly an M2 Max, 64 gigs of RAM. You're going to buy this $800 Metabones adapter thing. You're going to buy one or more PL mount, full frame anamorphic lenses. And then you're also going to buy three V mount batteries. (laughs) So maybe next we should talk about how you've obviously won the lottery. (laughs) Uh, I sold my car. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're walking home tonight. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. (laughs) Point is, Viltrox has made these cheapest I've ever seen PL mount lenses. Yeah, that are, but it's not. It doesn't it doesn't squeeze enough. I, I was looking. I'm like, what if I what if I adapted PL? I mean, there's a lot of really cool cinema lenses in PL. They are all so expensive. <laughs> I mean, even the cheapest ones. If you're getting a spherical prime, they're like twenty five hundred dollars. Yeah, it's just a different world, honestly. Oh, All that cinema totally. stuff, it's just you know, they. I I honestly think it's priced because they don't expect regular people to buy it. You know, it's like this is probably going to be bought mostly by rental houses or you know big studios or whatever. I feel like it's just not priced for consumer use at yeah. all. 
I mean, those those DZ, DZO Prime sets, they seem pretty cool. And you can get, uh, I think it's a 20 to 55 T2.8 DZO Zoom for full frame for PL for $2,500. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a reasonable price. I don't, I mean, do they, they perform well? I mean, I think they're pretty decent as far as like cheap, cheap cinema lenses go. They're, you know, par focal and all that sort of thing. Huh. Okay. But I think that you can buy like a set of four, three or five of their cine primes for uh, eight, eight thousand, eight thousand dollars. Only, only, only eight thousand dollars. <laughs> wow. And what's, what is a set of nanomorphs? Like 2,700? Oh, they, they're like, you know, barely two thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah, it's like you can get the nanomorphs, the full set of the nanomorphs, and a MacBook Pro, or you can get this one set of either lenses that you're going to need a speed booster to be able to actually use. Yeah, I'm just going to have to get the nanomorphs. Yeah, so I'm going to have to do. Yeah, I think I think you should. I mean, you you seem really into anamorphic. Mm-hmm. I feel like you should get an anamorph and try yeah, it out. Yeah, it makes makes more sense. Just use it for but, everything. Take pictures with it. But if oh, jeez, that'd be so cool. But I'd be like GX Ace on YouTube. If if I did get a speed booster, PL or EF, I mean, like, which way do you go? It seems like all the EF options, there are some Cine options. Like, a lot of Cine lenses do go to EF, but then, you know, you have all the whole whole Canon line. I would go EF if it was me. Mm. I feel like you're still at the point that you, you have some EF lenses lying around, so you do have a Canon 7D. You know people who have EF lenses, and if you want to go to the local camera store and shop for used lenses, they're going to be EF lenses. I think that until you start doing like big projects, I feel like that just makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, what would make even more sense is to get one that, that's F mount. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that would pay for itself. Oh, very, for sure. Very I mean, I think they just give you give you some Nikon lenses with the speed booster yeah. whenever you do that. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, they unlock the case and walk away and say, take whatever you need. Like, yeah. Uh, thanks for buying the speed booster. Feel free to grab as many of these F mount lenses as you'd like. <laughs> As, and, uh, as many as you can hold in your arms as, as you walk as you out of the carry. store. Fill, here's a bucket <laughs> and whatever you can fill in the bucket. That's how many F-mount lenses yeah, you get. It'd be great. Yeah. They, they probably do make that speed booster too. Yeah, they probably do. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not doing that. It would be, it would be, I'm not, I'm not going to get a speed booster, but I kind of want one. <laughs> I don't know. I think you can buy some of those Helio Russian lenses or um, some of the old like vintage film lenses and you can change the, the mount to them. I wonder if you could change them to PL. Probably there's so. No, there's no reason to go PL. Like, why Why would I do this to myself? I'd be like, yeah, I can't get any lenses because they're all uh, $10,000. Uh, why did I buy this stupid PL mount adapter? Boy, do I feel cool. <laughs> it's for street cred. That's it. That's the yeah. only reason. Yep. I'm gonna, we're going to walk outside. I'm going to start flashing my metabones at people. <laughs> That's definitely illegal in some states. Oh, yeah. Flashing man. your metabones at people. It's no, it's no good. Yeah. Boy, man, is there any, is there, have we, have we covered all the ground today? Is there anything I, else for us to talk I, about? I think so. You know, I saw this list when we started and I said, there's no way we're going to talk about all these things. And we got pretty far. We haven't even talked about the new, the, the updates to the DJI mic. We might have to save that one for next week. Oh, jeez. Okay. You're going to have to update your firmware and then give us feedback on it. Yeah. And then right. tell me whether or not you think it's worth buying the two transmitter or the one transmitter. Well, we will figure that out and we'll see what we can come up with. But in the meantime... Please don't flash your metabones in any way. <laughs> you can't stop me. That's going to do it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed it, we'd encourage you to rate us on iTunes and tell your photography friends about the show. Also, check out our website at cameragearpodcast.com to learn more or send us feedback and questions. We'll be back with more next week.